Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Bible in a Year podcast. I am your host, Jay Smith. With me again, Jimmy Doyle and Travis Bruno. We are in part two of chapter 11. Just want to remind you, as I always do, a little broken record here is go to read-scripture.com to follow along with us as we read through the Gospels in 2022. We are in chapter 11, and we kind of left you off a little bit of a cliffhanger. We are in the story of the temple being cleared and then the fig tree being cursed. And and Jimmy took us on a kind of a journey through some of the richness of how deeply this is interconnected to the prophetic words or the prophet words, excuse me, just to, just to clarify that distinction. Uh, not that it needs to be distinct, but just for the sake of looking back at the prophets of how this story would have resonated with a lot of what was taking place through Zechariah, through Isaiah, through Jeremiah. Uh, and, and so Jimmy, I want to give you some space before we kind of look at a little bit more of the, uh, follow up from the temple. Is there any other kind of insight from the prophets from the old Testament, uh, that you feel like would be important for us to catch a, a larger understanding or what you use some language, like giving color even more to this story? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's just kind of more of the same of, I just encourage you to go back and read these passages in Jeremiah, go back and read Zechariah. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to go, well, this doesn't fit. And then there are going to be some things that kind of stand out that that do fit, kind of like there will no longer be any of those who are selling things in the temple at the end of Zechariah. Um, you know, if you got a digital uh, way of looking things up in the scripture, you might look up figs and see how that's used in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, another word for figs, uh, kind of a, a phrase for figs is summer fruit. Um, it's one word in Hebrew, but it's, it's summer fruit in English. And so like in the book of Amos, uh, the Lord Yahweh showed me this. This is a vision, right? That Amos is saying this. The Lord Yahweh showed me this. I saw a basket of summer fruit. And he said, what do you see, Amos? And I replied, a basket of summer fruit. Then Yahweh said to me, the end has come for my people Israel. I will no longer overlook their sins. Now in English, you're like, okay, well, that doesn't make sense. But there's always like these little footnote things that you can go and look at the bottom. There's a little note there. And so the word for summer fruit in Hebrew is kayets, and that's figs. Summer fruit is figs. And the word for end in Hebrew is kates. They sound very similar. And so God's using a play on words and a vision to Amos to say, basically, go and what do you, what do you see? Oh, I see a bag of figs, kayets. And that's what I see. And Yahweh says, well, see, this is the end, the kates of of I've, I'm frustrated with my people and judgment is coming. And I think so this reference to the fig tree would have a, a resonance that would have, be full of that history, literary history that's been important to the Jews that would have stood out to them. And so I think any kind of study on something like that where God is expecting fruit from his people, not finding fruit, whether it be grapes or figs or whatever, that's kind of the buildup to this story. And that's kind of that rich biblical perspective, uh, that interbiblical perspective on these moments. To give it more depth and meaning. I think one of the things that, and, and Travis, you may share this question. So if I step on your toes, I apologize. But one of the things that is unique to me in that second part where you get to verse 20 through 25, where the disciples realize, it, and it's still like Mark uses this. And I felt affirmed this week because the dullness thing, I feel like originated in my own reading. And then I read it uh, in T. Wright and Michael Bird's book, New Testament in its time or whatever, which is just brilliant. But one of the high emphasis for him and Mark is the dullness of the disciples. And so I was like, well, me and N.T. Wright are pretty much the same. And so uh, but in, in, 
in this moment, it feels like another one of those things where it kind of displays their dullness, where it's like, Jesus, look, Rabbi, look, the fig tree. This is verse 22, 21. Peter says it. The fig tree you cursed is withered. But Jesus doesn't. What would be helpful in this for me is if Jesus took it and made all of those connections, right? Like if Mark would have made sure like, well, you know, the fig tree actually remember Amos and Zechariah. You catch all that disciples. But instead, he goes immediately to this conversation about prayer and faith and how impactful it can be if you ask for things without doubting. Um, And so I. And then obviously this little tether at the end where it's like, and also forgive people so that you might be forgiven, uh, which for anybody that has grown up in a tradition that read the Lord's Prayer or recited the Lord's Prayer, like that's going to be a direct connection for me at least. So why does Jesus move on to that as a reflection to that? Travis, I want to give you a shot, man. Like anything you, when you hear that, I know you'd mentioned that kind of in, in preparation, but what do you, what do you do with Jesus's response to what just happened? I don't totally know, but what I start to do with it, I think, um, and one of the first things that I, I, I think I tend to do when I'm trying to process things that Jesus says that I don't really understand where he's coming from or why he goes this direction, um, is that he usually is talking about the heart of things. And, and so maybe, you know, in this, all this imagery in this context about the temple and cleansing the temple and, um, the way that there was injustice and the the way that it was supposed to be, um, it wasn't the reality for them. There was there was this tainted, um, I guess, reality that uh, they had missed. Um, and so for this story about faith and moving the mountain and asking in prayer and believing it, um, and even at the end of that um, about forgiveness, like I think Jimmy, you've said this before in another podcast about. Um, prayer and the way that Jesus is talking about it. Like, I think I had asked like, what kind of prayer was it? And it's not like there's this list of prayers. And so which one is the lucky prayer? Um, but it's just this idea again of the heart of it. And so maybe Jesus is saying something about prayer and like, it's not the way that you verbalize it or the way that you say it in your heart. But, um, if you are closer to the way that God intended it, um, if, if we're closer and more aligned with God's heart, um, we, we know, um, and are more in tune with his will and, um, the way that he sees the world and the way that he wants to make it new and make it restored and make it right. Um, and part of that, um, especially with relationships, forgiveness has to be a part, um, of making relationships right because, Um, when there's a wrongdoing, like you have to reconcile somehow, um, you have to move on from that. And so that's kind of the only thing that I know how to do with it. I don't really know how to tie it to all of like the Jewish history and and the words of the prophets and all that necessarily other than kind of the common thread through all of it is always about the heart of it and taking, um, the commands and the systems and whatever of God, uh, and, and doing it for the reason that it's important and not just making it um, a rule to be followed. And so Jesus is saying like, follow me, trust in me, have faith in me, um, have faith in God, um, treat other people the right way, have forgiveness for each other, um, be fair, be just, and, 
mountains can be moved um, if if you live closer to the right way, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think... <clears throat> so I have this way of looking at the Bible. So here's a fancy word, hermeneutic. Uh, we all interpret the Bible. We all pick and choose. And the thing is, is for most of us, uh, we don't realize what we're picking and choosing, right? Sometimes I don't realize what I'm picking pay attention to in the Bible and not picking to pay attention to. Uh, hermeneutic is kind of being aware of how you, how you pick and choose, how you interpret. And I've chosen, I've tried to choose a hermeneutic that takes in the whole picture. And for me, the beginning of the story of humanity is God saying that he wants to create people to be like him in his image. Um, and you find that what happens is, is we have this broken image of God. There's parts of me that are like God and parts of me that are broken like God, like in the sense of parts that, that were like God likeness in all of us. We were talking about emotions the other day, that emotions are a part of God. The problem is, is my emotions are broken. They go off in ways that they shouldn't go, that my behavior goes off in ways that they should, that are not like God. And Jesus is kind of the fix. So in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul repeatedly calls Jesus the image of God. That somehow Jesus, if you want to get a picture of what humanity was supposed to be, that Jesus is it. But then Paul says that through the Holy Spirit, we're supposed to be transformed into the image of God's Son. We're supposed to be made more and more like Jesus. He says in Philippians that we're supposed to have the mind of Christ. We're supposed to think like Jesus. Uh, and when I say supposed to, like that's not a should. Like we have the opportunity through the Holy Spirit to be fixed, to be mended, to be more like what we were supposed to be. And so the Torah and the prophets, it's not about following a, a bunch of rote rules. It's about being transformed into this God-likeness. And I think what we see in the life of Jesus, he's going off and he's spending time in prayer. He's engaging God in such a way that he has the mind of God, like he's seeing the things that God sees and he's doing the things that God does. And if I can be like that, if I can actually end my prayer time, then of course my prayers are going to be answered in the sense of, cause I'm going to align with God and what I'm asking for. To me, that, that, that kind of makes sense, but my heart's also going to break when I'm asking for the things that God wants that it's just not their time yet, or it's not, there's still the brokenness of the world that goes against what God wants. You know what, what's an interesting thing. I have two different perspectives on this fig tree thing. Like, here, like one is that we 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 get amazed at this. Like, man, if I ask anything, I could tell this mountain to fall, go and be dropped into the sea, and it would go. Anything that I ask for. But the really more amazing part is is at the end. Uh, whenever you stand praying, forgive, and if you have anything against anyone, so that your uh, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who's in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And maybe the bigger miracle here is that we actually have forgiveness in our heart. Like that would be the true transformative thing in me. If I don't hold grudges against people and bitterness and I actually can let go of that, that's, that's the bigger miracle than throwing a mountain into the sea, maybe. Uh, so the question is, it's how come, the question isn't maybe how come my prayers aren't being answered? It's how can I be transformed to be more like Christ who forgives? I also kind of wonder as they're sitting there on the Mount of Olives, if Jesus is my, in, his, in the human nature of Jesus, if he's processing everything that has just happened himself. Like when he says, uh, if you say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, which mountain is he talking about? Is he talking about the Mount of Olives? Or is he looking from the Mount of Olives across the way to the Temple Mount that he has just cleansed? And is he like, you know, the truth is, is if you have enough faith, you could throw that whole mountain into the sea. And then as he's processing, maybe he's also processing the reality of forgiveness. Like he's just waged 
you know, some violence in the Temple Mount. And maybe he's also realizing, but I have to have grace for my people and I have to have mercy and I have to forgive. And we kind of drop out those human elements of Jesus. And in the Gospel of Mark, he's been angry, he's been frustrated. Maybe he's processing that himself um, as the Holy Spirit's working in Jesus and his godlikeness and his humanity. Maybe. I don't know. Man, I think that's some, for me at least, as I read that, a really helpful understanding of that. And and it's hard. I think that a lot of us have been, and I had to step away for a second, so if I repeat anything, I apologize. But I think a lot of us have probably been burned by different churches or religious organizations who have uh, made faith and the lack thereof the reason for failure or the reason for something not turning out the way it is. And I know a lot of faithful people who've prayed with incredible certainty who also suffered. And so I don't, I, I think we also just, I don't want to ever give space to not acknowledge. I, I, I want to make sure we give space to acknowledge like the complexity of some of these things, but it's one of the things that at least in my journey of trying to be a pastor and trying to be faithful to the text is I never want to, um, I don't want to, shorten the power and I don't want to just skip over it. So, and I say that because we're going to start here at, at the church I serve, which new covenant, most people that listen to this, maybe anyway, but we're starting a sermon series in the sermon on the Mount and it's impossible truthfully like to do a sermon series on the sermon on the Mount. That's in any kind of shortness, right? Like this is like a 35 week sermon series on the sermon on the Mount and we'll barely scratch the surface. But as we're doing it for me is I'm just like one of these things that continuously comes back up is like the tendency we have is to try to take this really difficult theme or reality and make it more palpable, right? Like more, Hey, this feels, this is really hard when Jesus says this. And so what do you really mean? It's like what we talked about last week, the rich young ruler. It's like, well, there was a, there was a place called the eye of the needle and a camel, would crawl into a ball and roll underneath it to get, you know, it's like, no, like Jesus is saying what he's saying. And in the easier thing to do, or not the easier, the harder, but most important thing to do is to not assume that Jesus is not challenging us, but instead to, to say, all right, so he is challenging us. What does that mean? How do I, how do I help? And then also to recognize that, that Jesus is calling from his people a faithfulness and a mindfulness of the way of the kingdom of God is we are constantly, especially in the Western church here is we are so much more about the salvific act or the salvation is that we forget how much of Jesus's story in life is the call to be transformed in the midst of that. And that's the biggest challenge is for me is I don't want to ever avoid difficult things because I read this and I was like, what? Uh, because I am, man. I've prayed in my guts that God would do some mighty things. Uh, and at the same time, I had this beautiful moment. I'm sorry, I'm like on monologue here, but I had this beautiful moment where I just had our staff around a table on Monday and we were talking about this passage exactly. And I said, you know, I just read these things and I get so frustrated because you know, we pray for this and we pray for that. And I don't feel like God's responding, right? And then one of our staff members who's always just got a heightened spiritual view of the world, right? Like she just sees 
that prophetic view of the world, right? Everything she just senses the work of God in. She just begins to rattle off, like, here's where I've seen God respond in that miraculous way. Here's where I've seen – in moments where, like, for me, as it was just a perspective shift, right? And for me, as it goes back to this reality that I can't get out of a frame of mind. And even when I read this, I read this through the context of the God in the bottle, right? The genie in the bottle version of God where it's like, well, I rubbed the lamp and three times, you know, it's one of those things that that he's supposed to answer my prayer. But just recognizing that – it's about abiding in Jesus and then recognizing also that that we look for the physical transformation and we value that as the highest priority while, while God's really in the game of, of transforming hearts. Uh, and that's the miracle that that often we we ignore or don't really celebrate. So anyway, that was, that was just kind of my processing of this really difficult passage for me at least. So, Well, and I think too that there's, I think that we don't want to make we don't want to lay burdens on people that are out of either hyperbole or not out of hyperbole. Like I think Jesus has a, a realistic experience of prayer and we can't take this one passage and overlay it in a way that does not allow that realistic experience of prayer. And what I mean by that is two chapters later, Jesus is going to be in a garden saying, father, I don't want this. Take this cup away from me. And the answer is, well, the answer doesn't, we don't hear an answer or silence. We, we see an answer. It's, but he's, but Jesus also says, not my will be done, but your will. Like Jesus has surrendered himself to God's will. He's asking for things. But if you, if you, if you took that passage and this passage and made them static, you're like, oh, Jesus didn't get what he asked for. He must not have had faith. And that's not, that's not the, the reality. Jesus is being faithful to the reality that God has called him to. And he's faithful and honest with God about his struggles. And in the in in Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, he says, "You know what? I had this thing, this thorn in the flesh, and I asked God to take it away. And God's answer was, "No, I'm not taking it away." Because Paul, when you're weak, I'm strong, and I'm going to let you remain weak. This thing is going to still bother you, so that I can be glorified. And we don't want to hear answers like that. But that's part of that transformation. Paul says that Christ learned obedience through suffering. Paul says, I want to know the power of the resurrection in Philippians. Who doesn't want to know the power that brings a dead man back to life? But then he, the, the next phrase is, but I also want to share in the experience of his sufferings. Whatever it means to be like Jesus, I want to be like that. And so in my prayers, I want to be like Jesus. I want to ask for big things. And I want to be honest with God about my suffering and the suffering of others and the things that I want changed. But I also want to be able to submit. And so uh, it is a transform. Prayer should, our whole lives should be transformative if we're following Jesus. And uh, prayer draws us into that. And we should, but at the same time, I think we should ask for big things. I think Jesus wants us to ask for big things. Mountains to be thrown at the sea, so to speak, especially if they're corrupt mountains. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's move on to the last little section of chapter 11 is uh, 11.27, and we'll just read through 33 as we kind of conclude chapter 11. They came again to Jerusalem while Jesus was walking in the temple courts. So just literally a day later, right? Like just for our mind, like a day later, Jesus clears the temple, fig tree situation. Jesus just jumps back into the temple. Uh, the chief priests and the experts of the law and the elders came up to him and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from people? 
answer me. They discussed with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from people, they feared the crowd, and for they all considered John to be a truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And then Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Uh, Mark talks often about authority and helping us see the authority that Jesus has, but also the authority that he gives to his disciples. Uh, and so this question of authority is is not something that should, as we've read this now for 10 chapters coming to 11, it should not be something that is a surprising conversation. Uh, but Jesus uses John the Baptist's story and his authority uh, to help kind of define, well, really to not define what his authority is. And so what's the connection? What, what am I, what should I see here? What am I missing here? Travis, why don't you start us off, man? Apparently I was gone just for the greatest revelation that's ever been revealed about the gospel of Mark. So tell me what you think, man. What do you read this? Like, do you, is this a, th- cause for me, this is an easy one because of how substantial the stories were before this. This is a really easy one for me to just kind of let disappear in my reading. Right. Like it just kind of, just to, we'll just put that one to the read side through and keep going. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I also have a question that's basically the same and maybe a dumb question, but like, Jesus's question to them, like what, what would it, I guess, what does it, what would it mean for John's baptism? Is that like the act of John being baptized himself or like his ministry of baptizing people? Is is that what Jesus is asking? I think he's talking about John's ministry and, and message of baptism, like John's unique thing. Like was he called from heaven or did he just decide to do it on his own kind of thing right okay yeah that's my question (laughs) thank you i mean (laughs) in the stories that we have of john the baptist he's not appealing to any authority either i think that's the idea like so if john doesn't appeal to any authority for what he was doing where did his authority come from you're asking me about my authority so what do you think about john the baptist it's a great play by jesus by the way like just in terms of dynamics like if if there's a politically divisive issue and i go so which side do you pick on that and people don't want to answer because they're afraid of what the crowd's response is going to be right like jay i could ask you questions about the political divisions that are happening within the political theological biblical divisions happening in the united methodist church and if i called you out in front of a group of people hey jay give me your answer and you were worried about which side of that you were on who's in the crowd you might hesitate to give me a straight answer Right. I mean, that's because it's a divisive issue and you don't want it to be oversimplified. Jesus, I think, knows that they're not going to answer that question. And so his answer is like, okay, well, I'm not going to tell you where I get my authority either. Figure it out on your own. Yeah. And I guess with that, to me, it's just like another example um, of their closed hearts, like in other places where Jesus says, like, to those who have ears, let them hear kind of thing. Like, and I don't totally know the implications of that thought or observation, but. It's just another point where they're sort of asking the wrong question in a sense, like you're missing the point, you're you're going the wrong direction. Like you're even if I could give you the real answer, like you're not gonna grasp the meaning of it. Yeah, and I think you also I think you're dealing with there's there's some thinking about the honor shame culture and just what's happening here for these religious leaders. The elders, I mean, this is like everybody. This is the the religious leaders in the temple. And this young 
rabbi from Nazareth slash Galilee comes and, and not only like that language, the imperative, right? Answer me. Answer me. You ask this question, answer me. And then the fact that they don't get the answer, they can't discern the will of God in this moment. I mean, the shame, the embarrassment. It's always one of these things where it's like, there's no way we could be in this and be surprised that Jesus got executed. You know, let alone the fact that Jesus predicted it, but it wasn't for nothing. You know, like he did a lot to uh, to really rebuke the people that had the power um, across the board. And, and that often leads to consequences. Uh, and so not only was it the will of God that he would be, you know, given up for the sin of all mankind. But in addition to that, as it was on the way out, like making sure that everybody knew where God stood in, in the way people handled authority and power. Um, so I don't know. I just thought that was kind of a important aspect of it as well. Yeah. He's hacking off all the wrong people and saying all the wrong things. And I think winning over the crowd though, I think he is winning over the crowd in terms of that dynamic. But I don't think Jesus is worried about winning over the crowd or anything. Like, I think he's just putting it to them. And I think the picture is here, like you're saying, Jay, like they're dishonored and they're people pleasers. Like they can't actually come up with a decision. They don't know how to answer. They're supposed to be the leaders of the people and they don't know how to answer this question. And we're about to go into segments of the gospel of Mark where Jesus gets really, his parables uh, get really critical of the, the leaders of the people and they know it and the, and the people listening know it. Uh, and, you know, I mean, yeah, it gets him crucified. It does. All right. Well, that seems like a good place to stop uh, for Chapter 11. Thank you so much for listening. One of the things you can do is just share this with somebody. If you believe that you have somebody in your life that could grow by hearing three guys just talk about Jesus, then 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 I encourage you to share this. Listen to it. Join us at read-scripture.com as we continue to read on in the Gospel of Mark. We'll be back to our normal rhythms next week with the chapter 12. Some of these parables we have been alluding to, chapter 12, Mark. So make sure you're joining us in that journey, reading along because scripture is intended to be read together. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time.